All right. Well, um, I've got this shed at my house, and uh, at one point this shed was a tractor shed, but uh, over the years it slowly and progressively became uh, a junk shed. And I don't know if you've got one of these at your house where you just kind of put all the junk, or for maybe for you it's like a closet or a room that no one's allowed to go into. Uh, but that's what this shed was for us. I mean, it's where we keep like our push mower, our leaf blower, our grill, our snakes, our spiders, our carpenter bees, all that kind of good stuff, right? Like you could go in there and you could find barbed wire or also spark plugs or also toys still in their packaging from the 80s for when Bill and Robert didn't open them up for whatever reason. That's what we're talking about here, okay? So one day I decided enough was enough with this shed. I go outside and I'm like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to clean this thing up. But if you've got one of these sheds or these closets or rooms, you know how daunting that task is of actually getting started with actually cleaning that thing out, right? Like you look at it and it's so far gone, you're thinking, I don't even know where to start. Like where do you even, I don't know how to get the door open. I'm afraid to even walk in there. Something's going to bite me. And so you're looking at this and you're thinking, I don't know where to start. And that's what I'm doing here. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, I was going to have to do the one thing that I did not want to do that I was trying so hard to avoid doing. I was going to have to pull every single thing out of that shed in order to get it clean, right? Have you had to do that before? You have to drag every last thing out in order to get this thing clean, which means that if you had come outside during this process, you would have looked and it would have looked like a tornado had gone through my whole yard. I mean, everything was thrown everywhere. I called Bill McKinney. I said, you better come get your stuff or otherwise it's going to the dump. And uh, I still took half of it to the dump anyway. So uh, we were just dragging everything and it looked chaotic and it looked like a mess and it was all disorder, but it was necessary. It had to be done in order to get it cleaned. And so later when Anna came out, she looked and saw that the whole shed was completely cleaned and organized, and I felt great about myself. But the whole point is that the mess was necessary, right? Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. Sometimes things have to get a little chaotic, and there has to be a little disorder in order for there to be order. Sometimes you have to make a little sacrifice in order to accomplish your final goal, which in this case was a clean shed and a happy wife. Amen, man, amen. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He is talking to us about following Him and what that looks like. And He's saying that there are going to be times in the Christian life where you feel like I did when I was looking at my shed. Where you realize that there's something you need to do and something you have to do that's going to be hard to do. It's, it's got a hard action you need to take. It's, it's going to bring about difficulty. It's going to bring about some divisiveness. It's going to be a little chaos. And you're going to be tempted in those moments not to do those things. And Jesus says, actually, you need to press in because those actions, those hard decisions are necessary for His purposes. You see, when Jesus came to the world, to earth, He came to make peace with man and God through the blood of His cross. That's His whole goal, is to reconcile God and man, and He does so by making peace by the blood of His cross. But in order to accomplish that goal, He first has to wield a sword. And He has to bring a little division. And He has to bring a little hostility and a little conflict, all in pursuit of this final goal. He's like a surgeon who has to take the sharp scalpel and cut someone open 
in order to remove the cancerous tumor. The pain, the, the injury is necessary for the ultimate good of the person. And that's what Jesus is saying is going to be required of us as his followers. If we're following him, he's saying we must be willing to sacrifice in order to see Christ's mission realized. We must be willing to sacrifice in order to see Christ's mission realized. And I know that's not fun to hear. No one likes to hear about sacrifice and what it's going to take and all that kind of stuff. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're wondering, okay, I've been following along for the past couple of weeks. These have been some hard messages. You kind of sound like you're trying to talk me out of following Jesus, which is kind of what Jesus is doing here. But, you know, so that's why I'm doing it. And you're wondering, okay, if it is true that I'm going to have to sacrifice, then what exactly am I going to have to sacrifice? And I think that's a fair question. I think that's what we should consider together this morning. What exactly are we going to have to sacrifice if we're going to follow Jesus? So you came to the most fun message in this whole series. <laughs> we get to learn about what it takes and costs to follow Jesus. And I want you to notice what he starts by saying in verses 32 to 33. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I think it's important for us to get some clarity here because Christians make a huge mistake at this point and they'll read those verses right there and they go, oh good, I was worried he was talking about me for a second. But I don't deny Christ, that's not me. I would never do that. I never deny Christ, I never hide my faith. I make sure everyone knows I'm a Christian. So move on, pastor, you don't even have to talk about this. In fact, many Christians go to the extreme at this point and they'll say something like, you know, if I was ever in a situation where someone held a gun to my head and they said, deny Christ or die, well, I would take the bullet. I would die rather than deny Christ. And that's a nice sentiment to have. It's easy in a hypothetical situation, is it not? Here's the thing, though. I'm going to be honest with you. That's a little easy. Because... What I find concerning is that almost every Christian in that scenario say they would take the bullet rather than deny Christ. Most Christians say they'd be willing to die for Christ when most Christians aren't even willing to live for Christ. I'm far less concerned with whether or not you would take a bullet for Jesus in that particular instance and situation than I am with are you denying Christ when you go to work on a Monday morning. It's a lot harder to live for Him than I think it is to die for Him. And there are many ways to deny Christ. It's not always verbal. That's why we get so comfortable when we read a passage like this. It's because we go, well, I've never denied that I'm a Christian. I always make it known that I'm a Christian. But denying Christ isn't just verbal, folks. We deny Christ in all sorts of ways. I mean, for instance, if you claim to be a Christian, but you live a life that totally contradicts the faith that you claim to have, you are denying Christ in your life. If you're focusing on material possessions and success in any other sort of idol, you're denying Christ in your priorities. If you hold to beliefs and practices that go directly against the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, you are denying Christ in your beliefs. If you neglect the church and the mission of God here on earth, you're denying Christ in your disobedience. If you never speak out against sin... If you never proclaim the truth of God's Word, you are denying Christ in your silence. There are all sorts of ways to deny Christ today, and we're guilty of them every single week. 
And why do we do this? Why is it that we do deny Christ in all these different ways? Well, it goes back to what we've been saying for the past few weeks. It comes down to our fear of man and our deep, deep desire to be accepted by mankind. And Jesus is challenging us this morning to consider who do you want to be accepted by the most? Is it God? Or is it man? Because if you care most about being accepted by man, here's what you're going to do. You're going to live in ways that the world approves of and applauds and accepts. But if you care most about being accepted by God, then you're going to live in ways that are pleasing to Him and not care what the world thinks about it. In other words, there's a sacrifice to be made here. If we want to be accepted by God, we have to sacrifice our desire to be accepted by man. And that's hard for us to come to terms with today, isn't it? Because we're all a bunch of people pleasers. It's one of our biggest faults today. But if you are going to follow Jesus obediently and do what He calls you to do and say what He calls you to say, we have to be willing to sacrifice our desire to be accepted by, the, by man. The Bible makes it clear in James 4.4, 4, it says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want you to notice this, church. They are mutually exclusive. Do you see that? You cannot be a friend of the world and at the same time be a friend of God. And so Jesus is saying here, don't waste your life striving for the acceptance that does not ultimately matter. Don't waste your life trying to please man. Instead, devote yourself to living a life devoted to pleasing God and striving for the acceptance that actually does matter. The acceptance that's eternal. Because let me tell you something you already know. The world could love you today and turn around and hate you tomorrow. That quickly, right? You see it all the time in our world. Pretty much everyone in the world loved Donald Trump until he ran for president. (laughs) Everyone loved Elon Musk until he bought Twitter. Everyone loved J.K. Rowling until she decided that she wasn't going to support the transgender movement. Then everybody hated her. Our world will love people. They'll give them these platforms. They'll applaud them and praise them and say, these are the best people ever. And then what happens? They find an old tweet or an old picture or something that someone says, and what do they do? They cancel them immediately. And that person is no longer loved and accepted by the world. They are canceled. Notice this, too. There's no forgiveness with the world. You cannot make a mistake in the eyes of the world and ever experience forgiveness. You have to be perfect all the time or that's it. Thankfully, we have Jesus who says, I know you're a failure. I know you're a mess up. I know that you have tons of problems in your life, but I do forgive you. So that's very good for us, right? But notice this, the world could love you today, turn around and hate you tomorrow. And you say, well, okay, pastor, all I've got to do is I've just got to keep my, my, my finger up in the air, paying attention to which way the cultural winds are blowing, and I'll just agree with the world on everything. You could try that. But the world changes their mind awfully quickly, don't they? I mean, think about how quickly things change. You look at our world today. 60 years ago, smoking was a culturally accepted practice. But being a homosexual made you a social pariah. 60 years later, homosexuality is a culturally accepted practice, and smoking will make you a social pariah. 
Do you see how quickly the world changes on these things? The world is constantly changing. Their their morals, their values, their standards. It's like trying to hit a moving target, trying to keep in pace with the world. And and so it it is fleeting. Notice this. The acceptance and the approval of the world is as fleeting as a breath of air in a cold night sky. It is there for a moment, and then it is gone forever. And you're never getting it back. And so why would you waste your life pursuing that? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you care so much about that breath of air in the cold night sky, you get to see it for a second, great, then it's gone. Don't waste your life pursuing that. He's saying strive for the acceptance that matters because here's the good news for us as Christians. The Bible says that God's approval and acceptance of you is completely based on Jesus. And so once you have the approval and acceptance of God, it is yours forever in Christ. You can never lose it. So why would you waste your life pursuing the acceptance of man when God says, I will give you the acceptance that lasts throughout all of eternity? And i got a fair warning for you here. If you're going to live this way, a a life totally devoted to Christ and His purposes and His mission here on earth, you are going to face some tension. It's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows. Notice what Jesus says in verses 34 to 37. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother-in-law and a, do- or a mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, these verses surprise people because they read them and they go, well, hold on a second, Pastor. This doesn't make sense. I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. I thought He was all about peace. I thought that was His thing. It was Jesus and peace. So what is all this stuff about, I didn't come to bring peace, and I came to bring the sword. What is is all that about? And the reason that people are so confused by these verses is because our world has a totally unbiblical concept of what true peace actually is. When our world thinks about peace, what do they think about? They think about the absence of conflict. They think about the absence of strife. This is not true peace. This is a facade of peace. This is an illusion of peace. And here's the worst part, folks. We have made an idol out of this peace. Because we think as long as everybody's getting along, as long as no one's fighting and screaming and arguing, then everything is good and there is true peace. But is that the case? No. And couples make this mistake all the time in marriage. I can't tell you how often. There's so often uh, times in marriage where you'll have a marriage that is completely falling apart. The spouses have drifted apart over time. They barely communicate anymore. There's no intimacy anymore. They both have things about the other one that they don't like, that they complain about. They don't like what he said. They don't like what she said. They don't like that he's not doing this, she's not doing that. I don't like the way she did this or that. There's all these problems. But what do they do? They ignore them all for the sake of keeping the peace, right? Well, I don't want to argue. I don't want to have an argument. I don't have it in me. I'm tired. I don't want to fight. 
I don't want to get them mad. I don't want to start bickering and having these big problems and everything. So I'm just going to ignore everything so that we can keep the peace and everybody be happy, right? But let me ask you a question, church. Do they have true peace? No. Their marriage is falling apart. Those tensions are boiling under the surface. Which is why when I'm counseling people for premarital counseling, which I did for my sister and brother-in-law, so you can ask them this, it's a true story. I tell people all the time, sometimes the best thing you can do for your marriage is have a fight. And you're like, well, thank the Lord I didn't come to you for premarital counseling. You, you could, but sometimes the best thing you can do for your marriage is have a fight. Because listen to me, the fight is in pursuit of something greater. The fight is actually in pursuit of true peace. The fight will actually let your spouse know that you care about them and your marriage enough to work through the hard things, even though you have to sacrifice that illusion of peace. So sometimes a fight is the best thing you can do. That, that tension serves a purpose. It's in pursuit of something greater. And Jesus is saying the same thing applies to our family relationships and with our friends. Because here's what I know, something sad about most of us, I think most of us have at least one unbeliever in our family, don't we? I think most of us have many unbelievers in our family, right? And let me ask you something, church. How often do we say absolutely nothing about sin? How often do we say nothing about their sinful lifestyle? How often do we say nothing about God's wrath and the coming judgment or salvation in Jesus all for the sake of keeping the peace? This illusion and facade of peace. I mean, you can think about the fact that Thanksgiving's coming up, right? And you're going to be getting together with family, and you're probably going to see some of your unbelieving family members, right? If your family is anything like mine, And maybe it's not. And maybe that's a good thing. There's bound to be at least one argument or disagreement. That's kind of what my family's notorious for. Anytime we get together, there's normally one argument or disagreement. That's mostly because we like to mess with Meemaw. She's super fun to mess with, and that's the easiest way to do it. Uh, Like we just had my sister's birthday dinner last month, and I was like, oh, hey, we made it through the whole dinner without arguing. Let's do something about that. Truth bomb drops. (laughs) But no, all right, so you're going to be getting together with your family for Thanksgiving, and you're going to have unbelieving family members there. Let me ask you if this scenario sounds familiar. Before the dinner even happens, someone in your family, maybe a mother or a grandmother, is going to say something to you and say, hey, when you come over, please do not mention this topic. Please don't talk about the fact that your cousin is doing this or living like that. Please don't say anything about politics or religion. Don't say anything about Jesus or where they're going to church these days or the fact that they've got a woman pastor. Just don't bring up any of those topics. And you're like, well, why? Why would I not do that? And the person says, because I just want everybody to get along. And I want everybody to have a nice Thanksgiving dinner. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Unless you've got a loose cannon for a son. Sorry, Mom. And I'm thinking the whole time, let's shake things up to the glory of God. Let's have a good fight. Because here's what I know. I know that I do have unbelieving family members. And I know that they are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account of what they did in the flesh. I know where they're headed now. So let me ask you, church, how could I possibly keep silent and say nothing knowing that I know where they're going? 
Their souls are literally on the line. How could I possibly keep quiet for the sake of keeping the peace and upholding this illusion and facade of peace when I know that judgment is coming? I mean, sometimes, you you have to understand here, sometimes the best thing you can do is have a fight at Thanksgiving. And when you do, you can blame your pastor. I get blamed for other stuff, so it's fine. The pastor told me to do it. I'm serious, though. Move past the pleasantries. Drop the niceties. And why don't you actually have a conversation that matters? A conversation that actually is going to mean something in all of eternity. Is it going to be rough? Yeah. Is it going to be tension? Yeah. But it's another sacrifice that we have to make. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we must be willing to sacrifice temporary peace in pursuit of eternal peace. That's the point here. We must be willing to sacrifice temporary peace in pursuit of eternal peace. Because I can tell you something that not many people want to hear. We're thinking we're doing people a favor by not having these conversations with them. If any one of your unbelieving family members or friends could say one thing to you and one thing only from hell, it would be this. Why didn't you say anything? And literally none of your excuses at that point are going to matter to them. You could say, well, I didn't want to upset you. I didn't want to offend you. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. I didn't, I didn't want to make you angry. I didn't, I didn't want things to be awkward between us. I didn't want there to be any tension. They'd say, it would have been worth it. It all would have been worth it if I had had the chance to hear the gospel and repent of my sins and trust in Christ. We're not doing anybody any favors by keeping our mouths closed. The problem with the church today is we care more about keeping up pleasantries and the facade of peace than we do about the unbelievers we love actually having true peace with God that comes through Christ. And that's why Jesus is saying here there's going to be division between family members. That's why a, a father is going to be against his son and a mother against a daughter and a mother-in-law against a daughter-in-law as if that relationship needed any more tension. Jesus says it's going to be there. It's going to be there because you're following Him. That's the sword that He's talking about here. He's saying, if you're going to follow Me and do what I call you to do, you have to be willing to risk that temporary facade of peace in pursuit of their eternal peace with God. And to make matters worse, one of the the main reasons that we don't have these hard conversations, one of the main reasons we keep silent, One of the main reasons that parents and grandparents are totally fine with their children and grandchildren living in sin and forsaking the ways of the Lord, the reason so many people enable their unbelieving friends and family members is because we love them more than we love God. And you say, well, um, pastor, is that a problem? I mean, I... I thought we were supposed to love people. We are. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We love everybody. But here's here's the problem. Number one is that we're to love God above all else. The Bible says in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, this is Jesus speaking. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So notice this, church. Whatever you put before God, whether that is your career, your ambitions, your dreams, peace, friends, family members, anything you put before God is an idol. 
That's problem number one. Problem number two is that what we're doing when we keep our mouths closed and we don't actually have these hard conversations with people, it's not actually loving. We say that we're not doing it because we love them, but the problem is it's not actually loving. There is nothing loving about sitting idly by and watching the unbelievers that you love walk the path to hell while you say nothing about it. I mean, you can think about it like this. I've got this cute little uh, baby, we call him Ezzy. Cute little bundle of danger is what we call him, okay? This kid cannot be trusted. Don't be deceived by his cute smile. He is a problem. Here's the problem with Ezzy. The thing that he loves most is being outside. Nothing brings him more joy than going outside. So you put him outside. Now here's the problem with putting him outside. He's like an energizer bunny that you wind up and you put him on the ground and he takes right off for the road. That's what brings him the most joy outside, this little ball of danger, okay? He wants to go straight for the road every single time. Nothing brings his heart more joy than running straight for the cars coming in the road. That's what we live with so you can pray for us. Let me ask you a question. As his father, I know that that's what makes him happy. I know that it's what he wants to do. I know that it's what is going to bring his heart the most joy possible. So, as his father, should I let him do it? Okay, y'all are concerned. The answer is obviously no. All right, Everybody say no. Can we say no? Yeah, good. All right. Obviously, the answer is no. And why shouldn't I do it? Because it's going to lead to his death, right? He is going to die. And so, regardless of whether or not he likes it or not, I cannot enable him or placate him. The best thing, the most loving thing I can do in that situation is intervene and stop him. Even though he is going to scream and freak out and lose his mind. And even though he's going to resist and there's going to be tension, notice this, the tension is for his good. It's to save his life. And in the same way, church, it is not loving for you to sit idly by and say, well, I'm not going to say anything to that person because I love them and I know it's what makes them happy. I know it's what their heart wants to do and all this kind of stuff. There's nothing loving about that. All you're doing as a Christian is holding their hand as you personally walk them down the path to hell. If you say nothing, if you do nothing, if you placate them, enable them all for the sake of this peace, this illusion and facade of peace, all you're doing is assisting them on their way to hell. If you really love them, you have to be willing to have some hard conversations and some conflict to the glory of God. Which is possible, folks. Sounds crazy. But you can have conflict to the glory of God. You have to be willing to sacrifice this temporary peace for the sake of of their eternal peace with God. And listen to me, it is hard to live this way. Can we all agree? It is hard to live this way where you're the one who bears the responsibility of having to be the one to have the hard conversations and tell people the things they don't want to hear, like I do every single Sunday when I get up here and I'm like, oh, you're a bunch of sinners, but so am I. But thank God for Jesus, right? We have forgiveness. It's not fun to be in that position all the time. But Jesus says it's worth it. It's not easy, it's not fun, but it's worth it. Notice what he says here in these last few verses. He says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
And so the disciples are wondering at this point the same thing that many people here are wondering. They're wondering, Jesus, how can we live like this? I mean, who signs up to live a life like this? Why would we willingly do this and subject ourselves to hatred and slander and persecution and conflict and division? Why would we do that, Jesus? And Jesus says, because this is the way to life. And it is worth it. He's saying, you have two options here. Every single person on earth has two ways they can live their life here on earth. Option one, you can live your life here on this earth and try to make the absolute most of it. You can pursue everything this world has to offer and receive all the rewards that it can possibly give you, but understand that those rewards are temporary and quickly fading away. Or, Jesus says, you can live your entire life here on earth for the glory of God and in pursuit of His purposes. And the reward that you will receive will be kept in heaven for you and guarded by God Himself, and that reward will last throughout all of eternity. And it seems fairly obvious which one we should pick. Correct, church? Everybody know the right answer at this point? I'd be surprised if you did I saw someone shaking their head. But actually choosing to live this way is very difficult, is it not? Actually choosing to live your life in pursuit of the glory of God alone is difficult. It means that you have to forsake everything else except for Christ, which is the sacrifice He calls us to make. He's saying we must be willing to sacrifice our worldly ambitions to achieve Christ's mission. Every Christian says they want to see the kingdom of God grow. Every Christian says they want to see God do great things. They want to see Christ's mission accomplished, but very few want to do what it actually takes to see that happen. You have to be willing to sacrifice all of your worldly ambitions in pursuit of this. And it's hard for people to come to terms with this because we are constantly surrounded by another message that our world preaches to us. You know our world preaches to us all the time, right? And one of the main messages that our world preaches is they want you to find yourself. That's what life is about now. Just find yourself. Find yourself. Find your life. Find what you love, what you're passionate about. Follow your heart, which is one of the worst, like most unbiblical things you could possibly do. But the world says, just find yourself and your life and your passion. Follow your heart and everything will be great. You know, take a backpacking trip. Practice meditation or yoga. Do whatever you got to do to find yourself. And then once you find your life, pursue those things. And so what happens? Well, you do. You do that, right? You find your life and your passion and everything else. And you start pursuing those things and you get comfortable pursuing those things. You want to know what the worst possible thing that can happen from a worldly perspective is at that moment? It's for Jesus to come along and say, forsake it all, leave it all behind, and follow me. That's the absolute worst thing that can happen in that moment. That's a hard ask, is it not? Because we all have our ambitions, don't we? We have ambitions, we have dreams, we want to we see the world. We want to travel. We want to climb the corporate ladder. We, we want to live a good, enjoyable life here. We want to make the most of this life, don't we? 
We want to have as much fun as we possibly can and do everything that our heart desires here on earth. But listen to me, if those things are taken away from your devotion to Christ, if they are derailing your obedience or distracting your kingdom efforts, they're not worth it. None of them are worth it. Jesus says, leave it all behind. Take up your cross. Die to your worldly ambitions. Die to your pursuits. Die to your desires. Die to yourself and follow me. Yes, you will lose your life here on earth, but you will gain eternal life in Christ. And it is worth it. Every Christian has to wrestle with this decision. Nobody gets around it. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, right? He had to wrestle with this decision. Because Paul's life was going great until Jesus messed it up from a worldly perspective. I mean, Paul was rising through the ranks of the Pharisees, right? He was a noted scholar. He had authority. He had position. He found out what he was good at, and he was pursuing that, which was killing Christians, but that's a whole other story. He was good at it. He was living his life. Everything was great for Paul. And then the worst thing possible from a worldly perspective happened. Jesus said, Paul, leave it all behind. Follow me. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul didn't immediately just say, all right, I'm all in, did he? It took time. He had to be by himself. He spent days in prayer wrestling with this decision. He said, I've got all this stuff going for me. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a scholar. Righteousness to the law. I've got it all. My whole life is great. Is all of that worth losing for the sake of just knowing Jesus? And this was Paul's conclusion. At the end of that time, this is what he concluded. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and listen, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. In other words, the end of that time when Paul's wrestling with this decision, is Jesus worth it? He says, yes, Jesus is worth it, and everything else is a bunch of rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. The question is, can you say the same of your own life? Are you willing to lose everything and gladly count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ? and having His righteousness attributed to you through faith? Are you willing to sacrifice your desire to be accepted by man so that you can be accepted by God? Are you willing to sacrifice this temporary peace with others in pursuit of their eternal peace with God? Are you willing to sacrifice even your own desires and worldly ambitions in order to use your life To achieve Christ's mission. 
And you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I am. Take your time, pray about it, do what you got to do. But understand one thing, folks. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not this false version that you see propagated in our world today where you just come down an aisle, you pray a prayer, you fill out a card, and then you never do anything else for all of your life and you just sit around and wait to die one day. That's not Christianity. That's Americanized Christianity and it is totally unbiblical. True Christianity is come and follow Jesus, take up your cross, die to yourself, forsake everything else, and follow Him. This is what it looks like. This is what He calls us to do. We have the responsibility of being willing to risk conflict and hostility and division as we seek to accomplish Christ's mission here on this earth. It's our burden to bear. You see Jesus, and He says, I didn't come to bring peace. No, He didn't come to bring peace. He came to make peace by the blood of His cross. But in order to do that, what did he have to do first? He had to bring a sword. He had to bring some conflict and some hostility and some division. And listen to me, as Christ's followers, we're called to do the same thing. Every Christian is called to wield a sword and carry a cross. And we do this so that this lost and dying world will have the opportunity to hear the message of the gospel to have the opportunity to repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus and be reconciled to God in Christ. That's why we do it. It is for a purpose, church. Our Savior's mission is peace. And first, in order to bring about that peace, He has to bring a sword. The question is this morning, are you willing to bear that sword for His name's sake? Let's go to God in prayer.